Um, Cynthia and I are absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to be here with you this morning at The Rock. And I want to say a special thank you to Jeff and Dan and Bruce and Wayne, the elders here, and the privilege I've had to work through the, the Rock's process of of the pastoral search. It's just been a privilege, and they've been so gracious and a delight to work with. So thank you. I also want to um, center out my brother who made the trip, he and his wife, all the way from Petrolia, Ontario, to any guy that shows up at a candidating weekend, he has to be recognized and centered out, right? So Bob and Lori, would you uh, give us a wave and acknowledge their presence here this morning? I'm delighted that they, they joined us. That's to ensure this never happens again. <laughs> Comes in unannounced. Listen, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 starts where Deuteronomy chapter 34 leaves off. The nation of Israel is once again standing at the border of the promised land, the land of Canaan. That piece of real estate that the Lord way back in Genesis chapter 12 promised to Abraham, later to be renamed, or promised to Abram, later to be renamed Abraham. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12 verse 7 it reads, The Lord appeared to Abraham, Abram, and said to your descendants, I will give this land. The Lord restated that same promise to Abraham's son Isaac, and then again to Isaac's son Jacob. It was a promise. This land would belong to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now many of you will remember this story, I'm sure. How the Lord later called Moses to lead these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out from under oppressive Egyptian slavery through a series of Signs and wonders, miraculous signs, culminating in that supernatural event where they walk through the Red Sea and their escape from the Egyptians. Seventy descendants of Abraham had entered the land of Egypt to escape a life-threatening famine. Four hundred plus years later, According to Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, 600,000 men, aside from children, escaped and began making their way to the land that God had promised their forefathers would one day be theirs. Along the way, they stopped at Mount Sinai. Moses was given the law of God to deliver to the chosen people, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He also oversaw the building of the tabernacle, uh, an elaborate tent, a, a portable temple, if you will, where God would promise to dwell among his people as they journeyed toward the promised land. Moving on from Mount Sinai, the people of Israel journeyed to the border 
of the promised land. But after sending 12 representatives out to spy out this unfamiliar territory, a land said to be flowing with milk and honey, the Israelites refused to enter in. Joshua, the same Joshua for whom this book is named, along with Caleb, were the only two of the 12 spies who, refused, who, who were convinced that God was able to give them or empower them to occupy this land that he had promised them. Numbers chapter 13 provides the record of this or the report of this mission they were on. So why don't we turn there for just a moment? Numbers chapter 13. Keep your finger in Joshua chapter 1, but turn back to Numbers chapter 13. And notice beginning at verse 17. Verse 17 of Numbers chapter 13. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, that's the 12 spies, he said to them, go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? Drop down to verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Let's just skim through this. Drop down to verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But but the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people. For they are too strong for us. Notice verse 6 at chapter 14. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. That's a visible expression of grief and frustration. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. For they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them, but but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. At this point, the Lord actually intervenes to save Joshua and Caleb's lives from the rest of the Israelite nation. He also announced judgment on those Israelites 
for their act of disobedience and rebellion. No longer would they be allowed to enter this promised land. They would be forced to turn back and wander in the wilderness until that entire generation had died. Forty years later, Moses and Caleb and Joshua are now standing once again at the border of the promised land, along with a whole new generation of Israelites. And this is where we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 1. Allow me to read the first nine verses of Joshua chapter 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their, for, their, for, their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Father, this is your word, written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, so that they wrote exactly what you wanted written. It claims to be useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, by your grace, they can be used by your spirit to transform us from the inside out. Oh, Father, may that be our experience this morning. Help us not only to be hearers, but doers. By your power and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of Joshua chapter 1 provides us with a concise introduction of this little episode. 
the main characters are introduced and the immediate historic context is established. Notice, verse 1, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Let's just agree that the death is a game changer. Helen Keller has said, or been quoted as saying, With the death of every friend I love, a part of me has been buried. But their contribution to my being of happiness, strength, and understanding remains to sustain me in an altered world. I think that's true. I think that's been my experience. C.S. Lewis, the well-known author of Chronicles of Narnia, when asked how he was recovering from the death of his wife after just a few years of marriage, replied, I'm learning to get about on crutches. How's it go? I'm learning to get about on crutches, but I will never be biped again. There's no question. Death changes things. It introduces us to an altered world. Death imposes a time of transition on us. And depending on how close we are to the individual who has died, will determine the significance and the extent of that transition. Sometimes transitions are imposed on us, like the death of a loved one, or the loss of a job, unexpected loss, or the loss of our health. At other times, they're invited the birth of a baby, a wedding, a graduation, a relocation, a change of vocation. All examples of things that would lead us into a a time of transition. So regardless, whether invited or imposed, times of transition are just an inescapable reality of life on this planet. It's not if, but when. Sooner or later, we will all find ourselves facing some kind or a time of transition in life. Certainly, the Rock Community Church is in a time of transition right now, following the resignation of Pastor Brown back in October. Cynthia and I are obviously contemplating a time of transition, maybe not in the too distant future. And some of you here this morning, you may be in the midst of a personal time of transition right now. Others of you may look out on the horizon and and see one coming your way. And so this morning, I want us to consider a couple of defined realities found here in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, that will help us to be better prepared to follow God's lead through a time of personal transition or through a time of transition. Does that make sense? For the nation of Israel, the death of Moses represented a significant time of transition. Look with me at the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5, 
Just flip over the page. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day, because apparently God buried him. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. Amazing. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Flip over to verse 10, same chapter. Since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, for whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The nation of Israel was in the midst of a significant transition. I see at least three indicators in those verses that we just read that suggest that Moses' death imposed a significant transition on this nation. Think about it. Moses was the only national leader these Israelites had ever known. And now he was dead. Secondly, they just spent 30 days grieving Moses' death in the plains of Moab. 30 days. That's a long funeral, folks. Thirdly, again, back to verses 10 to 12. They, they seem to indicate that these Israelites viewed the death of Moses as an irreplaceable loss. Don't you think? Why would I say that? Well, let's look additionally at not only those verses, but how Joshua chapter 1 is introduced. Notice verse 1 again. Moses, the servant of the Lord, Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' servant. Is there a difference there, you think? One's the servant of the Lord. Joshua is the servant of the servant of the Lord. In fact, in the New Living Translation, it translates that Moses' assistant. In the NIV, it says Moses' aid. And then if we turn back to Numbers chapter 11, verse 28, it refers to Joshua as the attendant, the attendant of Moses from his youth. Once an attendant, always an attendant. What we do know, and it's interesting to note this, that it wasn't until the very end of his life, Joshua chapter 24, verse 29, that Joshua is ever referred to as a servant of the Lord. So what do you think? Would our national news networks have reported the death of Moses as a national crisis? Regardless, I think that we can all agree that Moses' death imposed a significant time of transition for the nation of Israel. So, now what? Now what? Well, let's read on. 
Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua. The Lord stepped up, if you will. He was the one who took the initiative. The Lord spoke to Joshua. We're not told how he spoke, but we certainly know that Joshua got the message. An example of a gracious, compassionate God, Heavenly Father, taking initiative, reaching out. In a time of national crisis, following the death of of the greatest leader that these Israelites had ever known, God spoke. Isn't that just like the God that you and I know? Reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Comforted by God? To be a comfort for others. And certainly the Lord supplied that kind of comfort to Joshua and the nation of Israel at this point in time. God didn't abandon Joshua and the Israelites during this time of transition. In fact, he did just the opposite. He took the initiative to communicate with them. Amazing. Max Dupree, in his book, Leadership as an Art, has actually, years and years ago, supplied me with one of my, my life mantras. The first responsibility of leadership is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. And in between the two, you are both servant and debtor. The first responsibility of leadership is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. And in between the two, you are both servant and debtor. Amazing quote. That is what the Lord does here in Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 to 9. He defines reality. And then he takes the initiative to communicate that reality to Joshua in the Israelite nation. As a result, Joshua and this new generation of Israelites are better prepared to follow God's lead through this difficult time of transition. The first reality that God defines is found in verses 2 to 4. Let's read them again. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am giving them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness to this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Moses, my servant, is dead. Wow, that, that to me, like, that seems like a statement of the obvious. They've just spent 
30 days weeping over the death of Moses. And that's the first thing God says. He goes on. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. Again, nothing new here. It's a restatement of the same old, same old promise that these Israelites had heard over and over again throughout their lifetime. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 12 reads, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. We go on. Verse 4 is just a description of the geographic borders of this so-called promised land. Maybe more accurately described at this time, the deferred hope that's making Israel sick. Let's just take a moment, hit the pause button, and try and put ourselves in the shoes of one of these emotionally exhausted Weary Israelites. Just think with me for a moment. Over the past 40 years, you have attended a lot of funerals. Friends, family members, fellow Israelites. A whole generation. As you've wandered around aimlessly in this barren wilderness... Finally, you arrive at the border of the land that was promised to your descendants. And you no sooner arrive than you're confronted with a significant time of transition because your national leader has died. Moses is dead. And you spent the next 30 days weeping the plains of Moab over this great loss. But then the Lord takes the initiative to communicate with Joshua, to you through Joshua. Exciting times. But, think about it, nothing new. I don't know about you, but if I'm one of those Israelites, I'm thinking, there's not a whole lot new here. In fact, I'm thinking there's a whole lot of the same old, same old. If that's your conclusion, I'm right there with you. But, maybe that's the point. In times of transition, God's plans, God's promises, God's purposes, they don't change. Leaders may change. Circumstances may change. But the mission of God remains the same. The promises, the purposes, the plans of God remain the same. They are valid. They remain valid in our time of transition. They endure as a result. They provide handles on which we can hang on to, cling to while navigating these times of transition. The first reality that God defines was an unaltered mission. Didn't change. 
The promised land was their destination. The mission had not changed. Notice verse 2. Arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land that I am giving them. The message translation reads, Get going. Cross this Jordan River, you and all the people. Cross to the country that I am giving to the people of Israel. The first responsibility of leadership is to define reality. God took the initiative and defined reality for for Joshua and the Israelites with an unaltered mission. You and I can be prepared to follow God's lead through times of transition by embracing God's unaltered mission. The plans, the promises, the purposes of God remain unchanged. They provide handles, anchors, stakes in the ground that we can hang on to. And sometimes for dear life. But we can be better prepared to follow God's lead through a time of transition by embracing God's unaltered mission as found in this book. The plans, the purposes, and the promises of God. The second reality that God defines here is found in verses 5 through 9. Notice verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Now that may be easier said or written than actually done. Don't you agree? Be strong and courageous. Not once, not twice, but three times in four verses. Be strong. You may want to take a pen. I did in my Bible and underline the phrase. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. What does all this repetition mean? Before you answer that question, you need to know that when it comes to Old Testament narrative literature, repetition is a literary technique that emphasizes the point that's being made. In a predominantly oral culture, they couldn't pick up a, or they couldn't type bold print or underline or, or highlight the message. So repetition was an important way for a speaker to communicate This is important. Listen up. On this occasion, the Lord was obviously emphasizing the need for Joshua to be strong and courageous. But why? Why would that be so important? Three things come to mind. Maybe the Lord's attempting to make it memorable. Just make that so that when Joshua turns to go his own way, that he won't forget to be strong and courageous. You've heard the saying, I'm sure, when it comes to making announcements. Dan did a great job this morning, but, but this is what the, how they train announcement givers. Tell them what you're going to tell them. 
Then tell them. Then tell them what you've told them. And listen, having been on both sides of that equation, both as an announcer and as a receiver, there's no guarantees, even with that little formula. Maybe, but maybe the Lord was trying to emphasize, Joshua, don't forget this. Be strong and courageous. Or maybe it was the repetition was intended to, to capture his attention. Sometimes we're just not as attentive as maybe we should be. We're preoccupied, thinking about something else, distracted. Um, I have to admit that Cynthia can get irritated with me over this, this kind of poor behavior on my part. It's just, uh, sometimes we're preoccupied and we're not good listeners. And listen, I don't hear well at the best of times. So I can't afford to be distracted. But maybe it was that, that the Lord thought, if I say it at least three times, it will sink in. Or maybe it was because the Lord knew that this was going to be a, a tough assignment. He was going to be, need to be strong and courageous right from the very beginning to the very end. And remember, this isn't, we're not just talking about a day or a week or a month. It's a tough assignment, and he was going to need to be strong. To make it memorable, to capture attention, to reinforce the message, maybe it was all three, a little bit of all three. But notice the opposite of being strong and courageous in verse 9. Do not tremble or be dismayed. The New International Version translates that, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Being strong and courageous empowers us. It, it helps us to, to act, to move. On the other hand, being afraid and discouraged paralyzes us. Admittedly, sometimes it's easier to be fearful and discouraged quite frankly. But times of transition, it's an either or. We face a choice. We're either going to be strong or we're going to be fearful. The first reality that the Lord defined was an unaltered mission. The second was an undeniable mandate. This here's a command. And knowing those two realities, as defined by the Lord, can help us to be better prepared to follow His lead through times of transition. Regardless of the tr- tr- tradition transition we're facing, whether imposed or invited, we still have an unaltered mission because God's plans, purposes, and promises, they do not change. We can move forward clinging to the plans, promises, and purposes of God as disclosed in his word. And secondly, we have this undeniable mandate to be strong 
and courageous. For the next few moments, it won't take us long, I want to spend just the remainder of our time thinking about that undeniable mandate, just taking a closer look at this defined reality to be strong and courageous. Cynthia and I, as parents of three very athletic young men, have had on occasion, in earlier years, I guess, had front row seats, some t- just some what I would describe as amazing displays of courage and strength. Unbelievable. But I need to caution us as we come to Joshua chapter 1. Because the courage and strength that he's talking about here in Joshua chapter 1, it can't be developed in the local gym or in the fitness club. It's not that kind of strength or, or courage. In fact, the strength and courage associated with this undeniable mandate is not something that we can create on our own. You see, not only did the Lord command Joshua to be strong and courageous, he also provided the resources that made the kind of strength and courage that he was referring to possible. Apart from the Lord's provision, Joshua would never have been able to fulfill this undeniable mandate. He wouldn't. He would have failed. It was beyond his reach. So here again, the gracious Lord, gracious and compassionate Lord, he presents a, an undeniable, or undeniable mandate and then provides everything needed to fulfill that mandate. Isn't that amazing? He gives us the command and then provides what we need to fulfill. The, let me explain. Notice The strength and courage referred to here in Joshua chapter 1 is established, first of all, on a clear understanding of the Lord's promises. You see that in verse 6? Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their their fathers to give them. And then how about the previous verse, verse 5? No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Joshua's strength and courage is established on a clear understanding of the promises of God. In the same way, our strength and courage can be rooted in the promises of God, as disclosed in this word. Promises validated by a sovereign, all-powerful God. Not only does he promise, but he has the power and the ability to deliver on every one of those promises. And I don't know about you, but that gives me courage and strength. So that I'm better prepared to follow his lead through a time of transition. 
Secondly, the strength and courage referred to here in Joshua chapter 1 is established on a careful obedience to the Lord's commands. The first one was a clear understanding of the Lord's promises. Here we have a careful obedience to the Lord's plan, Lord's commands. Look at verse 7 and 8, make it obvious. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. And then verse 8, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Joshua's strength and courage was to be founded on a careful obedience to the law. In the same way, our strength and courage can be rooted in a careful obedience to the Lord's commands as presented in his word. An obedience that is rooted in God's holiness and humanity's sinfulness. Or in theological terms, humanity's depravity. Or in terminology expressed by Hillary Clinton, humanity's deplorability. And folks, I don't know whether you got the news up here during the campaign, but that was a big newsbreaker. But I'm here to tell you that apart from God, we're all a basket of deplorables. Every single one of us. Every one of us need to come to that point in our lives where we humble ourselves and acknowledge what the Bible tells us about ourselves is absolutely true. That we failed. In fact, we're, we're incapable of living up to the standard that God requires for relationship with him. We need to repent of our sin. Turn away from it. Want nothing to do with it anymore. We accept Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. The life that we were supposed to live, but are incapable of living. He lived. And then he, he died a horrible death at the hands of sinful men. Was buried, but rose from the grave victorious over death. And it was in the shedding of his blood that he paid the price for our sin. Amazing. As we believe, trust, place our faith in Jesus' accomplishments, our sin becomes his. And his righteousness becomes ours. Amazing. Second Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 21, describes the exchange that takes place this way. He, that is God, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do I hear an amen? Wow. First Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. 
For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. Or or the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God. And I love the way the New Living Translation translates. To bring us safely home to God. I say all this because once we have established that relationship with God, we become his children and his spirit takes up residence in our lives. And obedience to the commands of God are, are no longer a means of somehow earning our salvation, but become a way of working out our salvation. And there's a huge difference. You see, God commands us to be holy as he is holy and then provides us with everything we need to do just that. His spirit and his word. Knowing that, that I have the backing of a holy God, have these resources that he's made available, makes me want to live my life the way it was intended to be lived from God's perspective and gives me the strength and courage to follow his lead through a time of transition. Finally, Joshua chapter 1, strength and courage is established on a continuing awareness of the Lord's presence. Verse 9, have I not commanded you Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This strength and courage had nothing to do with self-confidence, personal accomplishments, the affirmation of others, a a healthy self-image, nothing to do with any of that. Joshua's strength and courage was to be founded in a continuing awareness of the Lord's presence and involvement in the affairs of his life. In the same way, our strength and courage can be rooted in the awareness, the continuing awareness of God's presence and engagement in our lives. A presence and engagement validated by the omnipresence of God. In fact, the psalmist writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? They're rhetorical questions. And the answer is obvious. Absolutely nowhere. His presence is inescapable. Knowing God is present and involved continually in the affairs of my life gives me courage and strength to follow his lead through a time of transition. You see, you and I, we can be better prepared to follow God's lead through a time of transition by embracing his unaltering mission based on the enduring plans, promises, and purposes of God. And embracing this undeniable mandate to be strong 
and courageous. A strength and courage rooted in a clear understanding of his promises. A careful obedience to his word. And a continuing awareness of his inescapable presence. Father, you communicate with us through your word. And your, and your spirit illumines our minds so that we can understand it. Brings conviction.